It would probably help to turn it on, huh? All right, go ahead and grab a seat. We are going to get started. Or keep talking, too. We can do that. That's, that's sometimes way more fun. I was, gonna, I was wondering if Lewis Canfield was here today, and then I saw that, yes, in fact, he's here. And I'm glad that you wore your, your shirt. Caltrans, borrow that one from your time there. Love it. Um, okay, yeah, okay. We're starting off good. I'm already putting people down before we've even begun. Hi, my name's Eric. I'm, I'm the lead pastor here, and I am equal opportunity pick on everybody. If you are just joining us, we have been in a series that we're calling Tent Poles. And a couple of weeks ago, we began by looking at a season in the church's history that was a pretty dark season. It was called the 30 Years War. And this war that spanned 30 years, fittingly, uh, that, w- that raged throughout Europe actually began as a theological argument and ultimately turned into all-out war for control of Europe. And by the end of it, over 8 million people had lost their lives. And I can imagine that for, for Christ followers in particular living in Europe during those dark, dark times of the 1600s, it was probably a pretty confusing time. Because on the one hand, you know Jesus' claim that, you know, if you are my follower, they will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And then they look at how things are actually playing out and they're going, there's no love here at all. If anything, our faith is leading to bloodshed. And in the midst of the 30 years war, there was a relatively unknown German pastor who wrote a, a track, which was a, the 17th century version of a blog post, in which he began to grapple with how do we move forward? How can we begin to find unity? And ultimately, he summed up his entire thesis with this line. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity or love. His point was, in the areas of such central importance, the things that deal with salvation, we must remain unified. But in all of those other areas that aren't tied to salvation, in the areas where there are disagreements, even between brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to have grace for one another. There needs to be grace and there needs to be space for people to think differently and even worship differently. And in everything, whether in agreement or disagreement, we must lead with love. It just has to blanket everything. Because as, as both Jesus and Paul made the point, they will know, you know, like love is the fulfillment of the law. That sums up everything. All of the law and all of the prophets were basically pointing out this is the heart of your father, God. Love one another. Of course, this begs the question, well, what are the essentials? What are the things that we need to unify around? And so that's what we are, are in a series of doing is exploring what are the essentials as we understand them as a church? What are the things that we unify? And those essentials, the, the non-negotiables, our core beliefs, we're calling tent poles. And this harkens to the image of a large tent. If you guys have ever been in one, you need to have poles that hold the tent up. Without the poles, the tent is just a piece of canopy that sits on the ground and there's no space for anybody. But when you've got these solid tent poles, whether it's in the middle or on the sides, those tent poles hold the tent up and it creates space for people to congregate. 
And specifically, it creates space for people from lots of different walks of life. Here at our church, our tent poles create space for people from different generations, from different backgrounds, from different socioeconomic uh, situations, people from different faith journeys. Some of you were raised in homes that did not believe in God at all. Some of you were raised Catholic. Some of you were raised Jewish. Some of you were raised Protestant or Lutheran. Some of you were raised agnostic. Some of you are just now even exploring what does it mean, this whole, you know, Jesus thing. And I don't even understand what I'm doing here this morning. And we can all come together and unify. There's grace and there's space for people from different perspectives, but it hinges upon solid tent poles or core beliefs that we all just say, these are the essentials and we are going to remain unified around them. And by the way, everybody has tent poles. Everybody has core beliefs that ultimately dictate how they approach life. I mean, even the scientific community and those who are adamantly opposed to any idea that there is a, a creator of the world, even the scientific community has tent poles. One of those tent poles surrounds their understanding of how we and all of the universe came to be. They would say, no, there is no intelligent design in it, but through billions of years of random genetic mutations, and you, you track, track that all the way back, it comes back to a moment in time where everything that exists was contained in a grain, something smaller than a grain of sand. All of the matter, all of the energy that has been unleashed into this world was in this small speck, and all of a sudden it blew up into what we, the, the materials that have become the world. Now, to be honest, Christ followers would, would say, well, yeah, we believe that there was a moment in time when everything blew into existence. After all, the Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom, everything, ex nihilo, everything was created, all of the raw materials. The difference between our Christian understanding of creation and the scientific community's understanding of creation is that we believe that there was a creator that stands behind creation. It's about the who behind the what. And that's why our first tent pole has to do with God, the creator and sustainer of everything. We'll throw it up here on the board. This is tent pole number one. We looked at it last week. There is one God, though he has eternally existed in three distinct co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have a name for that. We call it the Trinity. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. He spoke the universe into existence and he holds it together through his will. And though God transcends time and space, he has chosen to stay intimately involved with his creation. So we looked at that tent pole last week and we're not going to belabor it this week. I just wanted to kind of set the foundation for the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first, first book of the Bible establishes our tent pole. We do not believe that we are here by accident. We don't believe that everything we can see, hear, touch, taste is just the, the product of some random act of some random explosion that happened billions and billions and billions of years ago and it just accidentally came to be. We believe that there is an intelligent creator that has stood behind creation and has been forming it and shaping it. The first chapter of the Bible actually goes into a little bit greater detail of how all of those raw materials that were spoken into existence ultimately came to be 
sky and, and ocean and, and heavenly bodies, the stars and moons and, and the planet and how he began to, with the words of his voice, began to speak the, the sky into place and the, and the oceans into place and land over here and, and let there be trees and, and other flowers and plants that grow up out of the ground and allow there to be um, fish in the sea and birds in the air and animals that move along the ground. God spoke all of these things into existence. At least that is our core belief, one of the foundations for our gathering together. I bring us back there because those same passages that talk about the formation of the world, our worldview, also speak to our formation, where we came from. And it, and it speaks to our second tentpole, which has to do with who are we and what were we created to do? What is the purpose of life? Does the Bible even speak to it? And I, we believe it does. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seat backs in front of you. You're more than welcome to grab that, use that. If you don't own one, take it home with you, please. It's our gift to you. But there's something that I want to point out about the formation of humanity. In chapter 2, chapter 1 kind of gives us a, a big, broad overview of God creating everything. And then it ends with God forming humanity. In, in chapter 2, it zeroes in on his formation of man and woman. And it says this at the very beginning in, in, chap, in verse 4 of chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent the rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And this is the part that we're getting to. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. What I find so fascinating about the description of humanity's creation, the first human being's formation, is that it is not like God has created everything else. Remember, he spoke everything else into existence. I want birds, I want fish, I want animals. And then it comes to humanity and he gets his hands dirty. Because when it comes to humanity, he gets down and he, t and he gathers up the dust of the earth and he begins to form a human being. And then he leans down and he breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of the first human being, somebody we call Adam. Humanity was not created the same way the rest of creation was done. And that is important because God changes it up. And he creates in humanity this beautiful synthesis of divine breath or divine spirit and corruptible flesh. But why does he change it up? Because humanity is not just another part of creation. We were created for something special. And in order to understand why he made us special, why he changed up how he created us, let's go back to chapter 1. Because the clue here is found in, in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. This is God explaining his rationale. Remember this triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in community with himself he says this, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, 
in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Just in case you didn't get it, the first two times they mentioned it were made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. We are the only thing that is described as being made in the image and the likeness of God. And both of those words carry with them heavy connotations. Now, typically when we initially start thinking about being created in the image of God, our first thought might be, well, that means that God looks like us or we look like God, right? So God must have two arms and two legs and, and a nose and two ears and stuff. He, he kind of looks the same on one side as the other side. The only difference is he probably has a big white beard. And of course, he's got to be white, right? Because, you know... Do you see what we do? We, God has created mankind in his image and then we return the favor, right? That's what we've always done is we start thinking God looks just like me. You go, you, if you were to, in Jerusalem, by the way, and you were go, to go up into the Ethiopian, uh, you know, area where, where there are other people who worship, they actually have black Jesus up there. Because they're, they start seeing God through their lens, which is, I think is, is, is natural human nature. So that's our first thought, is God looks just like me physically. But remember from Scripture that God is spirit and truth, and so worshipers will worship him in spirit and truth. So we're not talking about a physical body, as if God is just some, some character out of a Gary Larson Farside comic book with a big beard and a unibrow cooking up the world in his kitchen. So what does it mean? Well, the next thing we tend to think about is that we're like God in character, right? God is creative. He created the heavens and the earth. That means that we were created to be creative. And we see that. I mean, there is tons of creativity in this, in this room. Tons of it. We see that God is relational. He is triune, three in one. And he created us to be in relationship. That's true for us. I mean, the first thing he declares to be not good is the fact that the man is by himself. We were created to do life with, with God and with one another. So we are relational beings. And in a lot of ways, those are just a kind of a sampling of them. We are like God. And that is what the word likeness refers to when we talk about being made in God's likeness. But that word image, we are made in the image of God. The word in Hebrew is selim. And it carries with it a far deeper connotation than just we look like God. The word Salem in, in Hebrew is found throughout the Bible. A lot of times it speaks to this idea of an idol or a statue or a representative of a God. So if you were to walk into a temple that was devoted to a pagan God, they would have an idol or they would have a statue that they built to represent their God so that when a worshiper comes in, they would have something to kneel down to and it gives you some idea of what that God is like. If, if you're worshiping Vishnu and you've got this God with lots of arms and, and with swords in their hands or if you worship, maybe you're in Ephesus and you are, are, are part of the cult of Artemis and you worship this goddess Artemis, she has all of these either eggs or breasts all over her to show that she is the goddess of fertility. This is what statues or images do. Now the word is also used throughout the ancient Near East to refer to the king. Kings were called the image bearers of whatever God they were. So if you go into Egypt, 
and you were to see the Pharaoh, Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra means the image of Ra, the sun god. So when people look at the king or at the Pharaoh, it's supposedly he is the representative, the image bearer of the god that they worship, and therefore they should worship him as well. It's insinuating. Or when he speaks, when he rules, he rules by the power of Ra. Are you following me here? So, now in those other belief systems, if the king is called the image bearer, what does that mean for all of the other people? This is the interactive portion. (laughs) If the king is the image bearer, what is everybody else? Not the image bearer. Therefore, they are the labor to bring about the will of the image bearer who brings about the will of the God that he represents. Now, here's the crazy part about Genesis chapter 1. When God creates humanity, he does not just create one or two people to be the image bearers. All of humanity is created in the image of God. And by the way, not just Adam. Because remember, verse 27 says... In the image of God, he created them, male and female, which means that both genders reflect aspects of God. And I see this play out in my own home. We're raising our sons, and and in a lot of ways, last week was Father's Day, and we spent a lot of time talking about how fathers, whether they know how to or not, are kind of uh, the image bearers for how we understand God the Father because we call him Father. And so we look at our earthly fathers and go, oh, God the Father's overbearing. Oh, God the Father's always angry with me. Oh, I'm constantly disappointing God the Father because my own father was frustrated with me and constantly writing me about everything, right? And all the fathers in the room are like, ouch, at least I am. But I'm so grateful that my wife is a partner to me in raising my sons because she reflects the heart of God and different aspects of God far better than I do. She is way more patient and way more nurturing to my sons. If I were raising them by myself, it would be like all Spartan training all the time. (laughs) Go kill a bobcat or or, or a possum or something, right? Like, just, oh, you got hurt. That's all right. Put some dirt on it. Let's keep going, right? My wife actually takes the time to hear their heart and draw them out of hiding. I love the fact that she does that because she is my partner in raising them up. And the beautiful part about being a part of a community is she and I aren't even raising our sons by ourselves. We have a whole lot of other people that reflect the heart of God into their lives as well. And I'm grateful for those of you who are doing that intentionally in their lives. But here's the point. Mankind, humanity, was created to be image bearers of God so that when people look at us, we make manifest, we make visible the invisible God. And he told humanity, I'm making you in my image, in my likeness, so that they may rule over everything I've created. I have made humanity to be my partners in caring for, cultivating, and moving this world forward. That's what we were made for. That's the purpose for which God created us, to reflect him, to fill the world with his image, to reflect his heart to the world, and to care for it. You following me so far? But of course, we know how this goes. We know that the image bearers don't last very long because very quickly after chapter 2 comes chapter 3 of Genesis, and suddenly there's a new voice that comes slithering in off the side. This serpent, this created being, one of the animals 
that God has made that's a bit more crafty than the other animals. And we believe that that serpent was filled with the spirit of Satan, that, that it was actually a fallen angel who thought, you know, hey, I was the leader of God's choir, I, I, but I think I could do a better job than him. And he fought against God and he was hurled to the earth. He was basically cast out of heaven. He's like, all right, God, spited. I, I'm angry at you, so what do I do? I'm going to lash out at your kids. I'm going to lash out at your image bearers. I'm going to take them down too. And so the serpent enters to the equation and he begins to go, wait. He begins to sow doubt in the hearts of the image bearers. He begins to pick away at their self-image. Did God really say not to eat the fruit in the garden? Oh, no, we're allowed to eat the fruit. We just can't eat the fruit of that tree because that tree's off limits. Oh, please. Did, did God really say you would die? Because you're not going to die. Don't you realize what he's done? He has made you deficient. He's withheld the knowledge of good and evil. And guess what? That particular tree he told me not to touch, that's the only thing that can give you what he withheld from you. And as this conversation is happening, suddenly the first seeds of doubt begin to find purchase in the soil of the heart of God's image bearers. First, they begin to look at themselves and say, wait a minute, maybe I am deficient. Maybe I'm not, you know, an image bearer like I thought. Maybe I'm not finished. And maybe God's not so good and loving as we thought he was because, you know, it's true. I don't know the difference between good and evil. I don't even know what those concepts are, and I kind of want to now. And you're saying that this can can give me what I want? Okay. Well, and and suddenly they find themselves inexorably drawn to the tree, and they, they, they take a piece of its fruit. And this fruit looks awfully tempting. And since this fruit seems to be able to give me what God has not given me with help from me, they finally take a bite, a fateful bite. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Oh. 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 Genie? You know what I'm saying? This is good. Mm. And they begin to eat. Mm. And as they eat, this really is good. As they eat, their eyes are open. And when they look at... Oh, shoot. This was a new shirt, too. And suddenly their eyes are open. And when they look at themselves, they can no longer see the image of God. All they see is the residue of their rebellion. And so what do they do? They're embarrassed, right? Because for the first time... Sin and shame has entered into God's good creation and it has tarnished his image bearers. They can no longer see themselves as God's reflection. Instead, all they see is their sin. And so, of course, they're driven into hiding. The first thing they do is they grab for whatever's at hand. And for them, it's fig leaves. For me, I'm just going to use one of these fake palm fronds. And, and, and they, they create coverings for themselves So that when people look at them, they won't see their mistakes. They will see the facade, right? And in their, I mean, let's keep this in mind. They have been naked the whole time. 
But for the first time, when they look at their nakedness, they feel vulnerable because they feel exposed. So the fig leaves do one thing. It covers over. It gives them a sense of safety that they can hide behind the facade. And then when they hear God's voice, remember they were created to do life with God, to partner with him in moving creation forward. But when they hear God's voice, suddenly it's no longer with joy, but it's with fear. It's with shame. It's with grace. They, they, they rearrange their fig leaves and then they hide behind the foliage. Now we laugh because this seems ridiculous, right? We see how ineffective this is. But we're the same. We just have had a little bit longer. We don't need fig leaves anymore in the 21st century. We've moved past that. We have other things, other masks to hide behind. We have, oh, let's, let's use these. We have smiley faces. Right? We just put on a smile whenever we feel insecure. We have our job. That's another thing that we hide behind. So we'll put on one of those. And, and we have um, what we ac- accumulate. All the things that we... That's a pretty bad spot right there. Um, we have relationships. Many of us are uncomfortable being single because to not have someone suggests that there's a deficiency there. So relationships. And the moment you break up with someone, you've got to find someone else. What else do we have? Come on, help me out here. What other stuff do we hide behind? Pride. No, we're, we're so proud of how humble we are. Yes, we are awesome. We are so much better than people around us. We have a tendency to want to put other people down so we feel better about ourselves, right? What else? Fear. We're not afraid of anything. Let's just go ahead. We're not, I'm not afraid. What are you talking about fear, right? And we continue to find things to hide behind. I, 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 we also hide behind social media, right? Behind carefully cultivated images of who we are, who we think people expect us to be. Even if it doesn't have any bearing whatsoever on the reality of, of how we're feeling and what's going on in our lives. We, I got a taste of this a few weeks ago over Memorial Day weekend because I had just reached a point, there was a lot going on in a lot of different areas of our life, and I and Kathy were both emotionally exhausted. We just needed a break. And our boys had been really struggling relationally at school, so they needed a break. And so we were really blessed with an opportunity to go to a a family camp over the whole weekend. And we get up there, and it was awful. It was perhaps one of the most difficult weekends I can recall as a parent. But right when we got up there, the first thing we did is put our stuff away, and then we go, hey, let's go find... Uh, the, uh, the prayer chapel. Let's just go center ourselves and spend a few minutes in silence with God. So that's what we did. We went and found the prayer chapel. There was nobody else in there. We say, all right, boys, we're going to go in there. We're going to sit still for five minutes, right? That was, that was not going to happen. We sit down there and my boys are vibrating in their seats and they're kicking the seat in front of them and they're like making eyes at one another trying to get the other person to laugh and they are laughing and they're laughing in return. And I find, so my kids are goofing around. I start yelling at them and before too long, Kathy and I are yelling at one another and it went downhill from there to the point where, Rainier, you've been there, right? I mean, this is just like, this is not what we anticipated this weekend to look like. There was a couple of moments, in fact, where Kathy and I genuinely looked at one another and said, let's just pack ourselves up and go down, go down the mountain. This is ridiculous. But we soldiered on. We made it through. Smiley face for us. We survived the weekend. Now, here's the ironic part. Throughout the weekend, I, I, 
I tried not to use my cell phone, but from time to time I would take a picture, you know, boys on the rock climbing thing, us at dinner or whatever. And I posted a couple of those pictures on social media. And if you had read the comments, you would have thought we were the, the best family in the world and having the greatest weekend. Oh my goodness, it looks like you're having so much fun. The boys are so happy. You guys are the best parents. And I'm like, if you only knew, right? It is so stinking easy to hide when your world feels like it's falling apart. And we are become very, very good at pretending. You and I were created to make manifest, to make visible the invisible God, that we together would fill the world with his presence. And yet quite often when we look at ourselves, we don't see the image of God. We see the mess of our mistakes and the, 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 just this overwhelming sense of shame comes over us. And we do one of a couple of things. One, some of us try to clean ourselves up. We try to be good. We try to make up for it. Got to get to church. Got to read my Bible. I, you know what? I need to read my Bible. A couple extra chapters tonight. I need to make sure that I'm giving a little bit more this week in the offering than I did before. I've got to make sure I do a couple of good things to make up for it. This is how a lot of the religions around the world present our relationship with God is you've got to do something. And we're trying to clean ourselves up. And you know that doesn't work. All we end up doing is just spreading it and hiding it. We shove it into the corners, you know, close the door on it and hope, hope, hope that nobody finds out that we are not nearly as put together as we purport ourselves to be. We go through life like the Wizard of Oz hiding behind curtains, hoping that people don't realize that we are not frauds. But we know that we are. And so instead we cover ourselves with the smiley faces the masks of activity and busyness and, um, you know, trying to climb whatever ladder you happen to be in. I feel shameful, therefore, I've got to try really hard in sports because if I do well in this game, then, you know, then I'll be somebody. And then we get so angry when we don't do as well as we wanted. Or I've got to get that promotion at work. If I get that promotion, that will affirm that I'm okay. And then we don't get the promotion and somebody else does. And we hate that person because they took what belonged to us. Or we, we find ourselves running to relationships saying, can you just fill this area? Or we trying to, we try to kind of accumulate and present a facade of, well, here's what I drive and this is what I wear and this is what, you know, I've got. And we cover over and we pretend and, and we pick the pictures that cast us in the very best light. And we can pretend to everybody. We become very, very good actors. I think that there's a lot of us in here, and I'm one of them, who's really good at saying, hey, I'm okay, putting on a smile. How you doing? I'm fine. And that smile hides hurt, deep, deep hurt. And we're just terrified that people will find out. And we might be able to convince everybody we're okay. Everybody but us, right? Because we know we're not okay. And when the ache of that performance, when the ache 
and the exhaustion of running on the hamster wheel of got to prove I'm okay, got to keep the, the plates spinning, got to keep, you know, showing everybody I got it together. When that exhaustion overwhelms us and we come flying flat on our face or when the cry of this is not real, you are, you're, you're fooling everybody but yourself. When those cries begin to break through the surface, our knee-jerk reaction is to try to silence them. To reach towards things that can numb them out or noise that can drown them out. We reach for a whole lot of things. Some of us reach for a pint of ice cream to just numb the pain. Some of us reach for the clicker, right? And we binge watch Golden Girls. Hypothetically, Merv. Um, some people will, will reach for their gym bag because exercise, that's how I got to take care of myself because how I look determines how I feel, determines how everybody perceives me. So I've got to stay thin and I've got to stay in shape. Some of us reach for drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, pornography, activity, working. There are some of you in here right now who are making a whole lot of money and working a whole lot of hours because you can't slow down long enough because it scares you what you hear when you do. And the whole time, the people around you that all they want is time with you are missing out on the best of what you have to offer, which is your presence. Or we... We have noise constantly, whether it's a cell phone in our pockets or podcasts or music that we're playing in through earbuds or, um, you know, in the car, we turn on talk radio or, or, or even just music. It can even be Christian music that just drowns out the silence. And when we come home, we put on the TV or we turn on video games, whatever it happens to be, we have become gifted at numbing out and drowning out the cries of This isn't real. This isn't who you are. And everything's not okay. I just wonder for you, what are your drugs that you run to? What are the things that you use to numb out this sense of I'm not okay? I mean, mine, one of them, I'll just tell you about one of them. One of them for me is books. And I'm not talking theology books, but even that's a way to hide. I'm talking about just pulp fiction. I just read voraciously. And one of my tells that I'm not okay is when I finish one book at like 11 o'clock at night, I download another one and I just keep going. And what my kids see is me staring at my phone. Yeah, I'm reading a book. My dad used to do it too, but he had the book out like this. And my family were satellites that just kept spinning around him, but very seldom coming into contact with him unless we needed something fixed because we broke it or we were in trouble and we needed help. Other than that, we were just satellites that were around him. And I am purporting onto the next generation the same thing, only it's a cell phone. And I'm, and I'm numbing out. So what is it for you? And I, I don't want you to answer that question. I just want you to consider that question. Because here's the point this morning. You and I were created to bear God's image, to fill this world with his image. And together, we were created to reflect his heart in this world through the way that we love one another, through the way that we interact with people, whether we know them or not, through the way that we conduct business, through the way that we 
You know, if you're in a service industry through the way we care for our customers, through the way that we are customers to others, even through the way that you deal with your pain. I know there are many of you in here that deal with chronic pain, that life has not been easy. Even how you walk through your pain is an opportunity for you to reflect the heart of God because in this world, we will have trouble. And we can take heart in the fact that because of what Jesus did, the brokenness of this life and the brokenness of our bodies don't get the last word. But how we walk through it says something to other people who are hurting, to other people who have lost hope. So we were created to be a reflection of the heart of God, to be his image bearers. But we all have a tendency to run to things that feed felt needs. All of us, all of us have disobeyed. All of us are covered in the residue of our rebelliousness. The beautiful message of the Bible, however, is that that God does not just leave us to our modern day fig leaves to hide. He doesn't just leave us hiding behind the bushes or hiding behind our shame and guilt hiding behind our busyness and our work. He doesn't give up on us. He didn't in the garden and he doesn't today. In the garden, Genesis chapter 3, where we see Adam and Eve disobey God and then see them hide from God, Genesis chapter 3 ends with a really interesting interaction between the first man and woman, the first image bearers, and the one whose image they bear. Because in their hiding behind their fig leaves and hiding in the bushes, when God shows up, he doesn't just say, well, good luck to you. No, he he actually does something really interesting. He goes and it says he makes clothes out of animal hide. In other words, he makes leather coverings for them to wear, for them to cover up their nakedness. This is going to date me. This will make me look like I'm from the 70s right now. Put it up and go, hey, right? So he makes covering for them out of because remember they had been using fig leaves which is a very momentary covering and then god says that's not going to to last in any way and so he makes animal hide coverings and have you ever thought for a moment where those animal hides came from something had to die in order to give them the skins that god could use to create clothes for them which means that the first recorded death in all of the Bible happens at the hands of a loving God and it is directly tied to his image bearer's sin. He kills an animal, takes the skins, makes coverings for them because they will last a bit longer and it can cover their nakedness and their shame. No, he doesn't give up on them. And yes, there are consequences to their disobedience. No, they don't get to hang out in the garden that is called delight, which is what Eden means. They don't get to hang out there any longer. But still he cares for them and he covers them. And that sacrifice foreshadows the entire sacrificial system that we find throughout the Old Testament, which foreshadows... A time several thousand years later when God would deal with their sin once and for all, when he would cover it once and for all, when he would send his one and only son, the Lamb of God, not only to live amongst them, 
but to ultimately give his life to cover our sin and our shame, to deal with it once and for all. Now, that's a conversation for another day. That's the next tent pole, and we're going to look at that next week. But here is the point. I share all of that this morning because I simply want to give you the background to tent pole number two. Can we throw that up here? Tent pole number two. I'm sure all of you can read that without glasses, right? It's also in your bulletin. Tent pole number two. God created mankind in his spiritual image. We are his image bearers to be like him in character, in his likeness, with the intention that we would be his representatives in caring for creation. That's what he made us for, to represent him, to partner with him in moving the world forward. Humanity has tremendous potential for good but is marred by an attitude of disobedience towards God called sin. We have a tendency to rebel. And this attitude separates man from God. Despite this fact, God's love for his image bearers never wavers. And he desires that no one would die separated from him by sin, but would be restored back into relationship with him. We have a God who created us to do relationship with him. He created us to reflect his heart into creation. It has been tarnished by our disobedience, and yet he doesn't give up on us. And next week, we'll look at how he restores us and redeems us. And, and, and brings us back not only into relationship with him, but also restores us back to the purpose for which he created us. But this morning, I simply want you to sit with this. This is us. In all of our ugly, we might hide behind the happy face. We might hide behind our social media posts that pretend that we're good. We might hide behind our job and our our job description and our job title. We might hide behind the the vehicles that we drive or the home that we have. We might hide behind beautifully sculpted bodies, whether that's through sweat or, or through Botox. We might hide behind our cell phones, behind behind our whatever, how many Facebook followers or Instagram followers or how many likes we get on a post. We might hide, but at the end of the day, this is us image bearers who have been tarnished by our own choices. And yet we have a father who loves us in spite of that. We might try to numb out and pretend this isn't reality, but this is us. And yet God loves us way too much to let this get the last word. So Father God, I thank you for loving us. I thank you that no matter how hard we try, we can never cover up our sin. And I thank you that you sent Jesus to deal with it once and for all. Father God, I pray that we would not continue to try to just make up for it by doing good stuff or to hide it behind a facade and numb it out through through whatever noise and whatever drugs of choice we happen to, to gravitate towards. Help us, Father God, to just come to you and find our healing, find our restoration, find our identity, and find our purpose in you. Have your way with us, Jesus. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. In a couple of minutes, uh, we're going to take...
an offering, and perhaps one of the things that you need to offer this morning is simply a prayer for help. I've been hiding. I want to come out of hiding. I want to be known. Maybe on your connection card is simply saying, hey, I, I need to talk to a pastor. I need to pray with somebody. Maybe you want to do that this morning. Randy, if you and Patty would be available up here, and I know Jeff's going to be in the back, and Kathy and I will be over here, and um, we would just love an opportunity. Perhaps right now, you're just going, I have been carrying stuff around, and I am, I have, I am covered in fig leaves. I'm covered in smiley faces. I have a facade that I have been spending so much time erecting, and quite honestly, I just am exhausted. I have been numbing out and running away from it, but I need to rest. I need to come out of hiding. We just want to pray with you. We don't need to know all the gory details. This is not confessional time. This is just saying, hey, we want to come alongside of you because we all, we all look like this. This doesn't get the last word. So let's worship God together.